Well, good morning. 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 As Micah said, my name is Michelle McKeska. I am the college pastor here at First Colony Christian Church. So you're going to have to deal with me this morning instead of Mike. Um, if you're just joining us uh, today, we are wrapping up our victory series this week. So for the past three weeks, we've talked about Jesus' death and his resurrection and what that means not just for you and I, but for the entire created order. That Jesus' death on the cross was more than just the cancellation of our debt against him, but it was a decisive victory over the powers. Uh, we talked about how we are to understand and live in the current tension where we seem to be between two worlds. That the beast has been given a mortal wound, but it still has destructive power. The decisive battle has been won, but there are still smaller battles to be fought. Finally, last week, we looked to the future, and we saw in Revelation 20 that Satan, death, and sin will finally and fully be defeated, and that heaven and earth will be restored and renewed. So today we're wrapping up the series by examining the nature of Christ's victory. Uh, and I would say it to you like this, if I can get this quicker to work. Can you all move the slide? That God's exaltation of Jesus, so his resurrection, vindicates not only who he is, that he is truly the Messiah, his cause, defeating the powers, but his way. It is this way through which his followers too must walk. And if you have your Bibles, if you'll open them to Revelation chapter 4, we are continuing in the book of Revelation, and I ask that uh, you put your thinking caps on. Revelation is not a book that is normally preached out of for several reasons. There's a lot of weird things in there. Uh, beasts and dragons and animals with seven eyes and four wings. Um, and it's just it really unfamiliar to us because we don't understand Old Testament apocalyptic literature. Um, and that's largely what it's drawn off of, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Daniel. Um, and so what the sum of Revelation, as Mike said last week, is that God wins. And so Revelation gives us a picture uh, of the victory uh, that is fought and won for. So Revelation chapter 4. Before we get into the text, I want to read you a riddle that is found in the Game of Thrones. I wasn't kidding about putting the thinking caps on. Um, do we have any fans of the series here, Game of Thrones? Mm. Right. <laughs> That's what I like to see. That's what I like to see. Um, so basically, I'll, I'll give you a sum up of the second book. So the kingdom has started to spiral out of control. The current king has died, leaving his 12-year-old son to rule the kingdom. Um, and I don't know if you've had very much experience with 12-year-old boys. Um, I've had a little bit. My husband has been taking over the middle school ministry, and I found it. It's not for me. Um, but I, I can just imagine a 12-year-old with absolute power. Yeah, yeah scary thought. It's a, it's a scary thought. Um, so... Obviously, we see that the book has taken a turn for the worst. This kid um, is abusing power, killing lots of people just because he can. Um, and so in the middle of all this, you're dealing with the question of power. Uh, how is it best used? How do you maintain the throne? How do you keep it? Um, and it's the, in response to these questions that an advisor poses this riddle. So in a room sit three great men, a king, a priest, and a rich man with his gold. Between them stands a sellsword, a little man of common birth and no great mind. Each of the great ones asks the mercenary to slay the other two, 
Do it, says the king, for I am your lawful ruler. Do it, says the priest, for I command you in the names of the gods. Do it, says the rich man, and all this gold shall be yours. So who lives and who dies? This is a riddle about power. Which of the great men does the mercenary believe has the ultimate authority? Is he a man motivated by greed or religion or perhaps lands and titles? But if it is simply up to the common man, is it not the mercenary who has the power? And if that is the case, how have kings for centuries been able to command thousands to go into war for them to fight their battles? Does the power come from the one who physically wields the sword or the one who commands the sword? The simple answer to this riddle is that power resides where men believe it resides. Therefore, we could say this about worldly power, that it is no more than a magician's trick. It's an illusion. It's an illusion that passes itself off as the real thing, and there lies its true power, the power of deception. It's a poker player with an exceptionally good bluff. I am not a very good poker player. If anyone has ever played poker with me, they know that. Um, and the advice here being given is to bluff. He says, power is where men believe it resides. Make them think you have power. Now, Revelation is a book that calls the bluff. It exposes the world's power for what it is and shows us instead a vision of who has the true authority. That's what we'll see in chapter 4. And how that authority is expressed, which we'll see in chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, we'll start reading. Verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the throne were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Okay, don't freak out. We're going to talk about the imagery. <laughs> so Revelation chapter 4, um, in this chapter, John is given a view of the present reality of heaven. This is not a future vision. The angel has, in a sense, pulled back the veil and revealed to John the unseen but present reality of God's realm. Uh, heaven is the place where God is. We've talked about this before in our series. In fact, a common euphemism for God was heaven, which is why, if you'll notice in Matthew's Gospels, he talks about the kingdom of heaven as opposed to the kingdom of God. It's a polite way of not having to use his name because they considered it so holy. Um, now, I want to talk about the imagery here uh, before we move on. So Yahweh, the one who is seated on the throne, is described like many Old Testament theophanies. So when God appears, um, he is commonly described as having the appearance of brilliant gems. Um, and this is another way of trying not to describe or give him a physical appearance. Because God is so wholly other that we can only say, well, it's kind of like, it's kind of like this gem here, and it's kind of like this, and it sounds kind of like thunder. They're trying to grasp at straws, trying to describe the appearance of God. Um, and around the throne is a rainbow. This is a sign of God's promise. 
to never again destroy creation with a flood. We saw last week in Revelation 21, the first thing that is described about new heavens and new earth is that there's no more sea. The significance of that is that the sea was an ancient symbol for evil and chaos. Um, and in a very frightening passage in Genesis 6, God uses chaos, he uses the sea to rid his world of evil and start fresh and gives him the promise, the rainbow, that he will never do that again. But in new creation, there will never be the need for another flood, for evil will fully and finally be done away with. The sea will be no more. And in these uh, first six verses, God is not explicitly named. He's simply referred to as the one who is seated on the throne. Well, what is the significance of that? Imagine, uh, if you will, that President Obama has invited me to his Oval Office because I'm a very important person. So, obviously, I'm going to meet the President and get his autograph because... Why not? Um, so I go into the Oval Office, and uh, we're talking, chatting. You know, I'm telling him my wonderful ideas for you know, our country and all that. And he says, why don't you take a seat? And I go behind his desk, and I sit in his chair. I think that he might say, I, I think you're sitting. I, I meant take a seat, but not, you can't sit there. Why? It's just a chair. It's not just a chair. It symbolizes something more than that. It symbolizes authority. So when you see the one who is seated on the throne, it symbolizes that he has the authority. He is in control. Um, not only is God on his throne, but in verse 4, John tells us that Yahweh's throne is surrounded by 24 elders uh, who obviously have some kind of leadership since they have crowns. So he's surrounded by other rulers. Um, and God is over them all. They bow to Yahweh. So Revelation 4 continues to describe the present scene of heaven, and in these next verses, we're going to see that worship is the primary function of the heavenly court. So if you'll open up again to verse 6, we'll continue to read. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Once again, we need to talk about imagery. It's just gotten even weirder, I know. Uh, there are four creatures that come on the scene, um, and what John has done here, he's taken a bit of artistic license from both Ezekiel and Isaiah, so he's combined the cherubim and seraphim, um, so he's given the creatures wings, but the point of his description here is that these creatures represent all living beings, and they're constantly worshiping Yahweh. This is what we are intended to do, and it's being realized in heaven. They represent bringing the worship of all creation before the throne of Yahweh. And that 
provokes the response of the elders to cast their crowns before the throne. This has extremely political significance, uh, for this was a common practice of a vassal king. A vassal king was a king of a province who was instated and held responsible to a higher authority. So Caesar at the time had several different kings who paid fealty to him. So they were king basically in name only. Um, and Nero and Domitian in particular had the habit of making the kings come before their throne and place their crowns before him. And the implication is pretty clear. Even kings bow before Caesar. I am in charge. But Revelation, as we see, turns this imagery on its head. It is Yahweh who is the true Lord, not Caesar. And it is Yahweh who is the true Lord because, as verse 11 tells us, Yahweh has created all things. Um, Yahweh as the sole creator was one of the defining tenets of Jewish monotheism. So we recently went through Genesis in our college Bible study. It was a really fun time. We tried to look at not only Genesis 1, the creation story, but also some other ancient Near Eastern creation myths, uh, specifically the Akkadian or Babylonian one. And we saw both continuity and discontinuity. But one of the, the biggest differences um, that we saw was the way in which the earth and creation came about and was formed. So in the Akkadian myth, you have Marduk and Tiamat, uh, two gods who are, who are battling it out. They're duking it out, and Marduk wins, and he slays Tiamat, and then he spreads her carcass. You see, he like stretches it out, dries it out, and that becomes the dry land. That's the, the world. It's pretty brutal. It's a pretty gruesome story. Um, and for those of you who have read Genesis 1, we see something very different. God simply speaks, and the oceans part. He speaks, and grass grows. He speaks, and the animals are formed. Humanity is made. Um, and so if God is the source, if he is the ultimate source of all things, then it can also be said that he is also the source of quite new possibilities for his creation in the future. And this is what the hope of the resurrection was based on, the creative work of Yahweh. The Jews held on to the truth that not only is God the sole creator, but he's faithful to his creation. That's what we've been talking about for the past three weeks, that God will not allow his creation to succumb to destruction and decay. Death cannot have the final word if God is creator. That is completely anti-creation. And Revelation 4 shows us that at present, the will and reign of God is fully realized in heaven. It is there that he's rightfully worshipped as the world's sole creator. The question that remains is how will God's will and reign become fully realized on earth as it is in heaven? And that takes us to chapter 5. I think I had another PowerPoint thing here. Can you all go to the next slide? Can you go to the next slide? Next one. Okay, no. We're good. Okay. So Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. 
And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb, standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So we come upon a new scene here in Revelation chapter 5, uh, where there is a scroll with seven seals, and no one can open it. And John starts to weep. He starts to weep bitterly because no one can open the scroll. And if we're thinking about this in a literal sense, we're like, okay, no one can open a scroll and can read within it. What's the big deal? I don't understand why this is, this is so traumatic to John. Um, but the scroll represents the plans and purposes of God. And if it can't be opened, then God's plan can't go forth. His redemption and his restoration can't happen. And no one is found. No one is found who's worthy to open it. Until the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. These were ancient messianic titles bestowed upon warrior kings like the Maccabees. So surely a savior would look like them. Surely one with such power would be able to open the scroll. And I want you to feel, I want you to feel the contrast here. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage. What John hears, the contrast between what John hears and what he sees. He is told that the Lion of Judah will open the scroll, but he looks and he sees a lamb who was slain. Once again, we come to the idea of power. Who has it? How is it expressed? The meaning then of the slaughtered lamb is that Christ's sacrificial death has become the defining way that God rules the world. All power and all suffering must be filtered through the lens of the cross. Revelation then is not just a story about God's victory, but it is simultaneously a scathing critique against the Roman system of power. Revelation uh, says that we can no longer think about power in the same way if we are to be followers of Christ. So today, as it was then, power is largely expressed through force, right? Uh, empires have always maintained their power through military might, and the U.S. is no exception. We have military bases uh, throughout the world, and just in case any country decides that they want to attack us, we make it very clear that we have enough nuclear power to blow that country to smithereens. Okay? So don't mess with us. We have power to destroy you. Um, in fact, I know that probably when measuring the credibility of a president, this will probably come up in the debates, um, we might critique him if he seems to appear weak to our enemies across the sea, if he wants to compromise and negotiate without first turning to threats. That's a weak president. We don't want that because it is force and fear that keep America safe from harm. But Revelation says that's the power of the beast. That's the power of the dragon. That is not the power of Yahweh and the Lamb. Philippians 2 would say that we are to have the same mind as Jesus, who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead lowered himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross. And the resurrection was God affirming and vindicating that obedience that way. It was a proclamation to the world that Jesus is indeed the King of Kings, and he is making all things new, 
down to the very way we, you, we view and use power. So from very early on in his ministry, we see that Jesus is redefining what it means to be the Messiah. All throughout the Gospels, uh, we see him rejecting the, the traditional path of revolt. And the temptation scene in the desert is one such place where that common trajectory is rejected. Um, and the ideas presented by the tempter at first seem very reasonable. So if you are the son of God, you've just come through the baptism, you've heard the voice from heaven saying, you are my son, I'm pleased with you. So if you really are the son of God, why don't you prove it in a spectacular way? What's the big deal? Surely God wouldn't want you to be hungry out here. Why don't you just turn some stones into bread? And if you want people to follow you, why don't you throw yourself off a cliff and have some angels catch you? I would follow that guy. I'm not going to lie, I would follow that guy. That's, that's pretty impressive. Um, you know, and you, you say you want to be king of the world? Okay, well, I have the keys to the kingdom. Why don't you just bow to me and it's yours? He's tempting him with a different way to be the Messiah. Um, and Satan's final temptation is heard through the voices of the onlookers as Jesus hangs on the cross. If you are the Messiah, come down. You saved other people. Why don't you save yourself? But Jesus does not come down, nor does he call upon his angels, for he knows that his status as Messiah commits him to the unexpected path of humility, of service, and finally death. It's the path of his baptism. Because there is something more dangerous than the evil in Rome, and there's a bigger battle that needs to be fought, and it can't, it absolutely cannot be won through force and fear. As we continue in our text, we see that it is only the lamb who is slain that can open the scroll. So picking it up and back in verse 8, we'll continue on. In verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We have talked at length about new creation in the past three weeks um, and how God intends for his will and his rule to become a full reality on earth. And the first way that God starts this process is with the Lamb. The witness of our entire New Testament says that the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection started the reign of God on earth. Now this was not what the Jews expected. The Jewish hope was for the corporate resurrection to happen at the end of the age. Everybody, all of Israel, will be raised. For the powers in the old age were sin and death. This is a sign that they're done, that God is reigning. 
So when Jesus is raised in the middle of history, the conclusion the early apostles made was that God's future had somehow invaded into the present. Um, that Jesus' resurrection was the inauguration of a new age. It was a sign, a foretaste, like we said last week, the first fruits of what will happen to all creation in the future. Um, we just got a new house. It'll actually be a year in August. And we have started a garden. Okay. Um, my entire family has brown thumbs. I am determined. I am, I am determined that I'm going to make things grow. And I'm going to keep them alive. Uh, but all that to say, I've started noticing things. Uh, I've started looking at plants and saying, oh, I wonder what kind, I wonder if that's a perennial, if that's an annual, and, you know, I'm starting to ask all these different questions, and so I've become a bit more observant, and so this spring, um, as I was walking uh, on the HPU campus, uh, you know, it was about mid-April, and I guess I had gotten used to winter. I think we all kind of do. We see the bare trees, and it's like, okay, everything's dead. It's kind of depressing, um, but I was walking through campus, and I saw the first tree had started to bloom. I, I never noticed that before, but it was just like, I, I took my breath away because I was like, spring is here. Spring, spring has started. That is what that means. Even though there's still bare trees all around, that means that winter will soon be over. That means the spring has started. And that is what Jesus' resurrection means for us. Spring has started. The new age has begun, and winter will soon be over. Spring is here. God's intent has always been to redeem and remake his creation, not to destroy it and to suck us out into a purely spiritual realm. Uh, as one of my favorite authors says, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. We do not follow Plato or the Gnostics. We follow Jesus, the truly human one, fully God and fully man. Heaven, as we have seen in Revelation 4, is God's realm. It is where the dead in Christ are waiting, but they are waiting for the hope of resurrection, of new creation. Whereas Revelation 21 says, the former things will pass away. The former things is not, it's not the world, it's death and sin and mourning and pain and slavery and abuse. No longer will creation be twisted and distorted by sin, but God has come to straighten, to heal, to restore, putting his world back together, breathing fresh life through its bones, so that it may finally serve its true purpose. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, God's future has finally come to the present, and his plans and purposes for the world are unfolding. So what does that mean for you and I? Revelation 5 has two things to say about the role that God has given humanity, um, and they're, they're quite surprising. Uh, the task, in a sense, is a continuation uh, of the work that Jesus has started. So if you look in verse 10, it states that God has made humanity to be a kingdom of priests. And secondly, that they are to reign on earth. Once again, God turns power on its head by sharing his reign with humanity. God's kingdom is vastly different from the kingdom of the beast. There's no abuse of power to be found. And since we share in God's reign, we also share in his mission. That means that you and I, the church, now must seek to bring God's future into the present. And we do this in a couple of ways. The first way is one that we've previously talked about, and that's by being faithful witnesses who worship the one true God and the world's true king. So we are called to be heralds 
to say that the time is here, the new age has indeed begun, and Jesus is king. Acts 1.8, uh, Jesus gives us the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he charges us to be his witnesses, to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. We are to proclaim to the world that Jesus has become the world's true king through his death and resurrection, and that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are the witnesses that are, as it were, called into court to give our testimony regarding the true God. There are also false witnesses who bear false testimony, and some may even try to silence the witnesses. The Greek word for witness is martyr, um, because they found that many times as they would give their witness, it would clash with the reigning government and would a lot of times cost them their life. But we must be willing. No matter the cost, we must continue to speak about the true God and his cross-shaped power, which exposes, again, the magician's trick. It calls the bluff. The second way that we bring about God's future into the present is by sharing and bringing about the wise rule of the Lamb into creation. So this is a call to stewardship. Um, stewardship requires both the affirmation of good things and also the removal of things that don't belong. Here again, we can come to the garden idea. So um, if I am to make a garden flourish, then I have to water and feed and fertilize specific plants, but at the same time, I have to root out the weeds that are trying to take the plant's nutrition. I have to both affirm the good and pull out the bad. This is once again an act of bringing about God's future into the present when God will finally affirm the good things and root out the things that don't belong, sin, death, and evil. First Thessalonians says that we are children of the day, not of the night, and that because of this, our actions must be different. We are called to be different in how we spend our money and how we teach our children and how we treat our enemies. So how can we reign and rule over creation? I, I know that even as I say that we are called to reign, I can feel some of you cringe because we've all been in those board meetings, okay, where a power play has been made. We've read about the Crusades, about the Spanish Inquisition, about the 30 years war between the Catholics and the Protestants. There are many places where we look and see to our horror that the church has colluded with the beast and has forsaken the way of the lamb. But there have also been times where the church has gotten it right. When against the odds, uh, a tense situation is resolved without bloodshed, without brutality. And one such example was the peaceful end of apartheid in South Africa. Um, such a, a beautiful display of, of Christians showing forgiveness and not seeking vengeance. Um, Desmond Tutu, I've been reading his book, No Future Without Forgiveness, which I highly recommend anyone to read. Um, but he was the Archbishop of Cape Town, South Africa during apartheid, and he was also the chairman of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And for those who don't know uh, what this is, imagine a, a court-like restorative justice board where you would have uh, the victims and the perpetrators who would come, uh, and they would the perpetrators would apply for amnesty, and the victims would come. They would both give public statements uh, either about the atrocities that they had committed or experienced. And after they had read these public statements, they could request amnesty and ask forgiveness 
for the families that they had hurt. The families could then offer forgiveness and approve the amnesty. Um, and it, the, the way that it's described, there's story after story in the book uh, where Desmond Tutu just says, and we were just amazed. You come into the room and there's immediate tension, but after people have spoken their story, there was forgiveness. There was reconciliation. There was restoration. And through this process, the wounds of South Africa slowly began to heal as countless victims offered forgiveness. Uh, one story in particular, um, I couldn't get out of my mind through this book, and, and I want to read you the story. It was about uh, the Craddock Four. These were four men who were dedicated to bringing justice to their rural community, which had suffered greatly under the abuses of apartheid. It's usually worse in the rural communities, uh, just because they don't have as much access to things um, as the people in the urban communities did. Um, and these four men had all been frequently detained, uh, tortured, threatened, uh, before they were eventually abducted and killed. Cicelo was one of the four, and he had been stabbed 68 times, had acid poured on his face, and his right hand had been cut off at the wrist. The hand was kept preserved at the police station in order to intimidate and stem any further rebellion. After the detailed account of her father's death, Babawa, which means blessed one, wanted to know who had killed her father. She spoke quietly and with much maturity for someone so young. And he said the silence in the room was palpable when she said, we want to forgive, but we don't know whom to forgive. They had at that point still no idea who had done these things to her father. But regardless of that fact, she had come with forgiveness in her heart. These families had experienced suffering and torture their entire lives from the hands of authorities. And they came with forgiveness. Already in their hearts, before they had even heard the account, before they had even received an apology from the perpetrators, they didn't know who these guys were yet. They came out later in the process, but they didn't know. And she chose restoration reconciliation. And it is in those moments when we glimpse the sun rising on the horizon, telling us that the new day is here, and that because of the cross, because of the resurrection, power without abuse is possible. Because when they were finally free, when these people were finally free and given power to speak, they chose forgiveness. They chose reconciliation. We are called to follow the way of the Lamb. This means wise stewardship over the things we've been given, working not for our personal gain, but allowing the world to flourish. It means using our power to redeem creation, to restore portions of our world back into right relationship with God. And as we close this morning, I ask that you listen to the breathtaking words of Revelation, which envision the Christian life as working toward the fulfillment of the first three petitions in Lord's Prayer. God's name being made holy, his kingdom coming, and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. God, we come before you so humbled. Um, 
by examples of forgiveness, by examples of loving our enemies. Um, This is true power, God. This is power to restore and redeem and to heal. I ask that you would challenge us with a difficult task of forgiveness, of the power of love as opposed to the power um, of abuse, God, and fear and force, that we as your people will be known by our love and by our radical, radical humility, God, and service. It's in your precious son's name that we pray. Amen.